Hey, it's Curious City's Jason Mark. Recently, we heard from one of our regular listeners, Joyce Miller Bean. She didn't want us to answer a question this week. Instead, she wanted us to dig into a piece of Chicago history that doesn't get a lot of attention. It all started when Joyce saw an obituary in the newspaper. In 2014, which isn't that long ago, as you know, I saw the obituary for Herb Jeffries. Name meant nothing to me, but what caught my eye is that he was 100 years old when he died, and he was a black singing cowboy. With my rope and my saddle and my horse and my gun, I'm a happy cowboy. She was very familiar with white singing cowboys she'd seen, like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. If you ever heard Santa Claus is coming to town when you were growing up, like my kids heard growing up, that was Gene Autry. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you. But she had no idea that there were black singing cowboys like Jeffries, who she discovered created the first all-black Western musical, Harlem on the Prairie. So Joyce dug around and found out more about Jeffries, and... During that search, she also started learning more about a black film industry in Chicago that started in the early 1900s. You should be able to have Googled in uh, Chicago film history and besides SNA, United Artists, and Charlie Chaplin working here, you should have also had Foster Photoplay. Foster Photoplay. This was the film company owned by William D. Foster. It's considered to be the first film production company in the U.S. owned by an African-American and that featured all black casts. You know, really, when you talk about independent black cinema, the very beginnings, it comes from Chicago. The reality is that black cinema has existed since the early days of silent cinema. Even before the start of the first wave of the Great Migration in the 1910s, Chicago's black population had already been steadily rising. And like with other industries, black Chicagoans found their way into film. But unfortunately, black history is so many times lost, forgotten, thrown away. It was not preserved. So to learn more about this history Joyce wanted us to share and to make sure it isn't forgotten, we turn to one of our favorite contributors, Ariane Nettles. She's going to help us tell William Foster's story, discuss his legacy, and tell us all about the hidden history of black movies in Chicago. That's coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. In 1913, Black Chicagoans would have lined up early to get a good seat at the Pekin Theater on 27th and State Street, a neighborhood that would soon be called Bronzeville. It was Chicago's first Black-owned theater and large enough to hold up to 1,200 people. Inside the Pekin, they could watch Black talent perform musicals and comedies, especially vaudeville a popular type of comedy that was similar to a variety show. Pekin is thought to be the country's first Black-owned theater to have a stock company or 
troupe of actors to perform regularly. But on this particular day, the audience wasn't there to see a live performance. They'd come to see William Foster's first film, The Railroad Porter. The silent film is credited as being the world's first film with an entirely black cast and director. The film was projected on the screen, accompanied by music, and one of the stars of the movie sang live between reels. The Railroad Porter had also been screened just blocks away at the State's Theater on 31st and State Street and would later be shown at the Grand Theater on 35th and State. Allison Nadia Field is an expert on black cinema and silent era film. She describes The Railroad Porter as... The short comedy that tells the story of a railroad porter who's gone out on his run. And while he's away, his wife is being wooed by a cafe waiter. So they're kind of having uh, a tete-a-tete in the backyard. And the porter husband comes back early from his run, catches them, guns are drawn, you know, a chase ensues. She says in addition to performers from the Pekin Theater Stock Company, Foster's film featured other black Chicagoans, including prominent people audiences would recognize from their neighborhood on the South Side. The cafe waiter who's this fashionably dressed guy um, who woos the porter's wife, he's played by Edgar Lillison, who was in fact the proprietor of the popular elite cafe. And people loved the movie. The Chicago Defender later said Lottie Grady, the singer who played the porter's wife, was, quote, a howling success as the leading lady for the Foster Film Company. It also praised Foster himself, saying, quote, Mr. Foster is to be congratulated and every encouragement given to him. It is always gratifying to see a member of our race embark into a new field of endeavor. And it's sort of this, you know, slapstick comedy. But it's interesting because it really showcased the new professions of modern life that were open to black people at the time, right? The heroes, the Pullman Porter. We don't know very much about William Foster's early life. We do know he worked as a journalist under the pen name July Jones. And through his writing and his movie making, we know what his ambitions were. To take advantage of a burgeoning film industry, to create wealth through entertainment, and to counteract the negative and untrue depictions of Black people that were the norm in white mainstream films. In the early 1900s, any film with the Black cast made for a Black audience was called a race film, just like music for Black people would be called race records in the 20s through the 40s. Black filmmakers who created them would work to challenge those misconceptions, and Foster is thought to be the very first to do so. In The Railroad Porter, in films like The Butler, The Barber, these are other films he made, he's depicting kind of a new wage-earning cosmopolitan black middle class that's reflected in the audiences that these films were targeting in a way that film really didn't do before. In making the Pullman Porter a hero, Foster created a character black audiences could admire and root for, which was, of course, not something they were used to seeing in the movies. Foster wrote about what he hoped to achieve through filmmaking in a piece he wrote in response to the 1915 silent film Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. Still referred to as the most racist movie ever made, the movie had white people in blackface portraying Black Americans as unintelligent and dangerous. 
The film was extremely popular. It was the first feature film to be screened at the White House. So in this article he wrote for The Defender, Foster argued that through movies, Black filmmakers could, quote, offset so many insults to the race and tell their side of the birth of this great nation. And Foster saw the potential profitability of movies as an industry for Black people. Looking at music as an example, he thought Black people could come together and popularize Black films across the world. He encouraged this, writing, there are 300,000 people in America working in the moving picture business in some way, either making them or displaying them, and not a thousand colored. Before he opened Foster Photoplay, Foster had gained valuable experience as a manager and publicist of entertainers, such as comedic duo Burt Williams and George Walker, and as the business manager at Pekin Theater. So he likely wanted to seize the opportunity to join the city's growing film industry, which already included many white filmmakers. I think what people don't realize is just how central Chicago was to the early film industry. A lot was happening right here. And this was one of the hubs. New York and Chicago, before folks <laughs> moved west and really founded Hollywood in Los Angeles, um, because of climate and a lot of other factors. Um, you know, Chicago is one of the main places uh, in the turn of the century and into the teens. And Foster's films, like The Railroad Porter, were monumental because they directly countered the visuals of Black people that were prevalent in films made by white directors at the time. Mark Reed is the author of Redefining Black Film. He says the common movie themes of the time all came from the same stereotypes. And it comes out of uh, always creating black males as passive and black females as angry matriarchs. There's no sense of love between the black male and the black female. And it's not only that, it's also the image that black people have this desire for white flesh. And long before D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, Movies like Ten Piccaninnies in 1904 and The Wooing and Wedding of a Coon in 1905 portray Black people in the same dehumanizing depictions. D.W. Griffith just took that from literature that was already available on the stage in vaudeville and Southern writers who were doing this. But even um, in Europe, there were these types of images. And so they were borrowing from an international depiction of black people, you know, and especially the ones who have arrived at a certain class. But Foster also didn't shy away from showcasing black folks of all socioeconomic levels. And in showing all types of black people who make up a community, he also included people who might have been involved in illegal activity, but who were part of the wide range of everyday Black experiences. Sometimes the more exciting part of the Black community is, is the community outside of the law. There were very famous Black gangsters in Chicago that even though they were gangsters and they dealt in crime, they uh, helped the Black community, just like gangsters in Harlem helped the Black community. 
For years, Foster screened his films in Chicago at the Pekin, States, and Grand Theaters. He also traveled out of town, showing films not just at traditional theaters, but also in churches and social clubs, where he would provide the projector, projectionists, and ads for the showings. But unfortunately, even after some years in business and with popular films in its arsenal, Foster Photoplay was never able to truly be profitable. Foster couldn't find stable investors and wasn't able to translate the popularity of his films in Black communities into a business model that worked for him. He tried everything from renting and selling off equipment to seeking financial support from both white and Black businessmen in Chicago. Eventually, though, he returned to writing as July Jones, produced newsreels, and managed the Grand Theater until he moved to Hollywood in 1929. There, he became a director for a white-owned company. With his films in hand, he'd hoped to use the experience to learn how to make talkies, or films with sound, and create another company. But he died in 1940 before he had the chance. Up next, William Foster's legacy. Stay with us. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. With William Foster's death, we also lost his work. Like many silent films, there are no archives of Foster's movies. But film critic Sergio Mims, who runs the Black Harvest Film Festival, notes, it's important to remember that Foster wasn't alone. There were many Black-owned companies in Chicago doing this work at the time. We just don't hear about them either. These are some of the names of some of the Black film production companies that were in Chicago. Of course, you had the Foster Photoplay Company. You had the Peter P. Jones Photoplay Company. And all these were located on the South Side. Okay, The Unique Film Company. The Royal Gardens Picture Company. They were all next to each other. 3110 South State Street. 3312 South Wabash. 3519 South State Street. 3704 South Prairie. We can assume that these Black filmmakers likely ran into the same business issues as Foster. It wasn't until talkies came along that Black filmmakers were really able to find longevity in the industry. But because of the foundation that Foster helped create, there was now a Black film industry with Black audiences ready to watch more movies that represented them. Oscar Michaud took advantage of that. He made his first silent film, The Homesteader, in 1919, six years after Foster's The Railroad Porter. And Michaud was the only Black filmmaker from the silent era to transition into talkies. 
Born in 1884, Michaud worked in Chicago's stockyards and steel mills, and also as a Pullman porter, before becoming the most famous director of race films in the silent era. And although Foster made the first film produced and directed by a Black filmmaker with a Black cast, Michaud's film was the first one long enough to be considered a feature. That film has been lost, but it was filmed near Chicago. Sergio Mims again. His first few movies he made in the Chicago area, such as Within Our Gates, which is arguably one of his best movies. It's an anti-lynching film. And it's very, very powerful. Unlike Foster's comedies, Michaud was known for producing films of a different genre, action. And in 1931, Michaud released his first talkie, The Exile. It became the first full-length sound feature with the Black cast. In total, Michaud wrote, produced, directed, and distributed over 40 films between 1919 and 1948. The experts I spoke with say we can trace the influence of these early Black filmmakers, like Foster and Michaud, to contemporary filmmakers like Ava DuVernay and Spike Lee. Ask Michaud. You should all know who he is. He's the grandfather of African-American cinema. Filmmakers like Lee and DuVernay are still working to increase Black representation in film and combat the untrue stereotypes of Black people that are often present in mainstream films. All the heroes in films shouldn't look one way. They shouldn't all be boys. They shouldn't all be Caucasian mm-hmm. boys. They should be girls. They should be girls of color. There should be all kinds of girls. There should be all kinds of boys. Yep. They just want everyone yes, to see themselves. Exactly. When I spoke with listener Joyce Miller-Bean, you remember, the listener we heard from earlier, It was the morning after the world learned about the death of director Melvin Van Peebles, whose film Sweet Sweet Back is considered one of the earliest examples of blaxploitation films. Blaxploitation was a movement in the 70s of Black independent filmmakers making films for Black audiences and with Black casts. The Black characters were heroes, often taking down white villains and white authority figures. It's a genre with a direct line back to those silent race films of the past. The fact that so many people don't know this groundbreaking history is upsetting for Joyce. So I'm angry that this rich, marvelous chapter of uh, cinema history that enriches everyone was pretty much excluded. And she says she was hurt that the work of these pioneering Black men and women has gone virtually missing from mainstream recognition. Many of the films like Michel's Body and Soul, another film he did, Within Our Gates, challenged Birth of a Nation, that horrible, racist, pro-Ku Klux Klan masterpiece. Joyce made quotation marks with her hands for masterpiece. His film challenged that, showing Black people who were getting an education, who were building their own businesses. So that's where I was hurt. Nobody wanted to hear that. She's hoping that when people hear this story, that they feel how she felt when she first read the obituary of Herb Jeffries, the Black singing cowboy. Surprised, but then encouraged to learn more about Black people's contribution to the film industry. Because it's a whole rich, wonderful chapter. Not just for African Americans like us, it's for all people to know. That, she says, is how we can all see the full picture. 
Thanks to Ariane Nettles for that reporting, and thanks again to Joyce Miller-Bean for reaching out to us. And that's a good reminder for you. This podcast runs on your curiosity and your questions. Send them our way at wbez.org slash Curious City. And check this out. We're interested in hearing about what it's like to be a Curious City listener. So help us make the show better by taking a quick survey. We're even sweetening the pot by giving everyone who takes it a crack at a $50 gift card. Just go to wbez.org slash Curious Survey. That's wbez.org slash Curious Survey. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and produced by Joe Dassault and me, Jason Mark. Maggie Sivet is our digital and engagement producer, and Sophia Lowe is our intern. Alexandra Solomon edits the show. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us, and we'll meet you back here next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.